They live not only in ages past, there are hundreds of thousands still. The world is bright with the joyous saints who love to do Jesus' will. May it be so with us. Amen. Amen. I didn't get fooled by the change of the time. I know it's not the Feast of the Nativity. I'm not going to preach about it by mistake. But I couldn't help but notice, seating in the celebrant's chair, how God had already taken care of the sermon, that the window of the Feast of the Nativity makes it clear what I want to say. And if you're in any doubt when you leave the service today, the sermon was about Jesus and nothing else. This past week, I had the opportunity to see inside another church stripped away at its interior, Trinity Episcopal Church on Wall Street, New York City. Trinity is undergoing a $95 million rejuvenation project on the inside of their church building. Complemented by their other construction endeavor, the new Trinity Commons Glass Tower across the street, coming in at a snip at $350 million. The numbers are appropriately eye-watering because with a portfolio worth around $6 billion, Trinity has some cash to spare to keep the brass polished and the windows sealed. Yet on our visit there, it was not the vast financial footprint of Trinity that struck me most, but a small and singular hole in the ground uncovered by construction workers a few weeks ago. As they were digging out a line for some piping inside the church, the ground beneath them partially collapsed, revealing a compact tomb of a single family, coffins intact, lined up carefully alongside one another on dirt that had not been stepped upon since the early 1800s. With all that has happened in that church for the two centuries since their burial, that family's space of intimacy had sat beneath, untouched and unbeknownst to the flurry of activity and achievement of the people up on the surface. Struck me as a beautiful metaphor for the life we share as the church. That when all is said and done, it is what lies beneath the surface and how we are grounded as people that matters most. That is what will matter most when we engage in our own dreaming for the future of this block here in Midtown. And it is what we give thanks for today on this Commitment Sunday and our celebration of the Feast of All Saints. That under the surface of everything that we are and do is a deeper truth that we are grounded in Christ forever. That is certainly the point that the letter to the Ephesians is trying to make as we heard it this morning. You and I are marked with the seal of the promise of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians says. Words from Scripture we hear repeated in the baptismal liturgy as children and adults alike have their foreheads signed with a cross of oil following their baptism is a moment of truth-telling, a reckoning of sorts for the lives we lead, a point in time that says to us and to the world, 
that we are people who have been made new and that our belonging in this world and in the next is to be in Christ above all else. If the baptismal liturgy doesn't expand on that explicitly, the passage we hear today from Ephesians certainly does. Our hope is to be set on the one who is enthroned, seated on the right hand of God, the Father and Mother of us all. As such, it is the name Jesus, not any others, that is identified in Ephesians as above every name that is named. That line is important as it happens and easy to pass us by all these years later. For the naming of the conqueror was an important part of ancient Near Eastern political culture. Following victory in battle, the conquering hero was celebrated by name and title, sometimes with the building of temples or other monuments. In Jesus' time, the victor in question was Caesar whose name was present everywhere, on coins, across archways, in public and in private spaces. And so to name Christ as the name above the named powers of this world set the two kingdoms, Caesars and Jesus, at necessary odds with one another. We might be inclined to take pause here and at the least feel a little uneasy at the sometimes entirely facile adoption of Jesus' name into today's political economy. No matter which side of the aisle, people have rather conveniently found Jesus to be sitting on. Even a partially careful reading of the Bible leads to the conclusion that the kingship of God and the kings and rulers of this world are almost never in close alignment. Of course, the pitting of the kingship of God against the kingship of people is nothing new. On our readings this morning, such a tension makes its way all the way back to the book of Daniel's retelling of the story of the Babylonians in the 6th century BCE. In the previous chapter to the one we heard, Daniel prays toward Jerusalem, contravening the decree of King Darius, an act that sees him thrown into the lion's den. In our passage today, Daniel envisions four kings of the earth as beasts coming out of the sea, not as kingdoms that will last, but as worldly powers that will indeed pass away. Both of these chapters state clearly that as powerful and terrifying as the ways of the rulers of his day and of our own might be, earthly power always passes in the end while the kingdom of God remains forever. From Daniel in exile to the church in Ephesus, there's not only a suggestion from antiquity that we should be wary of the overpromising of politicians. There is also a message being presented to us about what it might mean to be of the saints of God. It is this, that we are to trust in another kind of kingdom, in another kind of authority, in one that not only doesn't acquiesce to the powers and privileges of this world's ordering of things, but one that invites us to turn our view of the world and ourselves within it on its head. For we cannot serve God and Caesar. 
any more than we can serve ourselves and follow Christ. In the end, we have to choose. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus reminds the rulers and the ruled alike. For as Luke's gospel proclaims, the king of this kingdom, God, is the one who blesses the poor, the hungry, the bereaved, the hated, the excluded, the reviled, the defamed, those, as Paul would later expound, whom the world has counted as rubbish, as nothing, as of no value. These are the blessed of the kingdom of God, the least, the last, the unseen millions in whom God chooses to dwell as their beloved. Given all of this scripture about the call people heard in ancient times to follow the kingship of God on this our feast day, as we give thanks for the commitments we have made to the life of this church, we might ask then, what is our call? It would be tempting to say with so much that is of value that happens through this church that the call is simply to keep on doing the good for God that we have been doing. That our call, whether now on this All Saints Sunday or as we contemplate the future of our mission on this block, is to be more of what we already are, but perhaps in new and as yet unseen ways. On one level, this is true. Lives are changed here, and people are loved. Each year, men, women, and children in their thousands rediscover their worth and their purpose because of this church. Yet our call is not simply to be better at being the church. And as individuals, our vocation is not merely to be improved versions of the people we are today. Our call is to give up trying to act as if God does not. We cannot be God to ourselves, no matter how much our lives may suggest we believe otherwise. For we cannot fashion the ground for ourselves that holds the capacity to make us holy. We cannot speak with the voice that calls us beloved. We cannot birth ourselves anew any more than we can generate our life to start with or sustain it into eternity. What's more, we won't come to understand what Jesus is calling his followers to in Luke's Sermon on the Plain, and we won't come to see the belovedness of God in the lives of those whom the world seems to have forgotten to love until we can address our own struggle with kingship, until we can come face to face with our desire to be the author of our self-definition. The sobering truth of the Christian gospel is plain. If we have a hope to change the world for the better, we will have to change ourselves first. Our call is to loosen our fixation on caring so much about the appearance of what people see above the surface of who we are and commit to going deeper into whom God alone knows us to be. It is then to come to know who and in whom we are to become, 
for when we can put to an end our struggle to do something valuable with our lives and trust that our value in the world is already infinitely iterated by God, then we can at last be of service to the world. Today, we are indeed here to sing a song of the saints of God, patient and brave and true, a song which is also of our own sainthood and our own call to a different kind of life. Do not underestimate the difference your life can make in the world, not because of your own power or influence, not because you are right or righteous, but because you have chosen to ground your life in God's life, because you have come to see how fully you belong to God. In the words of Ephesians, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. May we know that hope today in this place, in our lives, for this city. Amen.